You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, we are in week three of a set of sermons through Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches in uh, what the Bible would call Asia, uh, what we would look at today and call modern-day Turkey. And Jesus is writing these churches with words of uh, both commendation and correction. Now, why would we as a church family spend a few months together in these two chapters, Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, in these seven letters from Jesus to these churches? Why would we do that? Uh, here's the the simplest way I could answer it. Uh, I I think that the real value of these letters is that they remind us of the most important question a church can ask. Uh, The most important question a church can ask is not, uh, what do I think about the church? It's not, what what do you think about the church? As important as those are, they're not the most important question. The most important question is, what does Jesus think about his church? That's the most important question. In Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus writes these seven churches to answer that most important question, to let them know what he thinks about their church. Uh, I said this a couple of weeks ago, but in this text, in a lot of ways, we are being invited to do something illegal. We are being invited to read their mail. Jesus is sending these letters to them, but he is wanting us to to read in, to to listen in on what he has to say. Because these letters, yes, they were written to these seven churches, but they were written for us, for our good, for us to reflect upon these things, for us to consider them, to allow these letters to these churches to help our church family. Now, of all the the letters uh, coming, these seven letters to these seven churches, The letter to this church, Pergamum, and next week, the church in Thyatira, I think are, I think they're probably the two most culturally relevant, the the most applicable to churches today, to churches just like Stonegate, to Christians today, just like you and me, just, I think they're the most relevant, relevant to people right now trying to follow Jesus of all of these letters. So let let me just kind of set the stage for what we're going to read today and consider today by going back to Ephesus for a moment. Now think back, we covered Ephesus a few weeks ago. Here was the problem in Ephesus. Jesus commends them for holding the truth. They cared about doctrine, right? They They were doctrinally serious. They held on to the truth, but here was the problem in Ephesus. They lost their love. Held the truth, lost their love. Love of God, love of neighbor, love of those within the church. They lost their love. Pergamum, uh, on the other hand, they had the opposite problem. Uh, This church held their love. They were loving God. They were loving other people. They were loving their city. They were loving all. They they were doing that. They held their love, but this church, the church in Pergamum, lost the truth. That was their problem. It was love at the expense of truth. Or we could say it this way. Compromise crept into the church in Pergamum. Compromise. That was their problem. And compromise, it's a problem for for the church in every single generation. There is a constant pull on the church to take a little bit of the Bible and a little bit of the culture, to throw them in a blender, and then to see what comes out. And we'll just go with that. 
But there is a constant temptation, a constant pull on the church to go about their life like that. Without constant vigilance, what is normalized in the culture will be tolerated in the church. Just a little bit of the Bible, a little bit of culture, throw them in the blender, whatever comes out, that's what we're going to go with. And to that, Jesus says, no, no, do, church, do not compromise. Jesus is looking at this church and saying, throw away the blender. No, do not do that. He's saying, yes, love your city, love the world around you. And yes, hold on to the book. Hold on to my words. Hold on to the truth of the scriptures. Do not lose the truth. Do not compromise. So here's how I want to approach this passage. If we are going to resist compromise, there are things, there are truths in this passage that we need to have settled deep down into our bones. There's four things. If we're going to resist compromise, Jesus shows us four things, four truths in this passage that we need to grab, that we need to hold on to. Let me just work through these four truths with you. Four truths to resist temptation, this temptation to compromise. Here's the first. Jesus first wants this church to know that his words carry weight. Or we could say it this way. His words carry the most weight. This is the first thing Jesus wants them to see. Church, my words matter most. My words carry the most weight. Now, let's just take a step back. This is a question that every follower of Jesus has to answer. This has to be settled in your soul. You've got to get to the place where you have crossed this line. You have settled this question. And the question goes like this. Whose words will carry the most weight in your life? Whose words will be most important in your life? Whose words will matter the most in your life? And the first thing Jesus wants to show this church, this church who values love at the expense of truth, is a picture of himself. Now, Jesus presents himself in a unique way to to each of these churches. So it's a little bit different in how he presents himself to to every church. Notice in verse 12 how he presents himself to the church in Pergamum. He says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write this, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, this takes us back to Revelation chapter 1, where John, he sees Jesus. He gets a vision of Jesus. And what John saw was so stunning that in verse 17 of chapter 1, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's how stunning this view that John saw of Jesus was. And John describes Jesus, what he saw in chapter 1. He he describes his eyes. He he says, the eyes of Jesus were like flames of fire. He describes his feet. They were like burnished bronze. He describes his voice. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And then he says, "Um, I, I saw his mouth. And from his mouth, John says, came a sharp, two-edged sword. Now, why a sword? Why would a sword be coming from the mouth of Jesus? Well, a sword was a symbol for power, for authority, for judicial might. The the sword was a symbol for, hey, what I say goes around here. That's what the sword was for. 
authority, power, judicial might. And we all get this. If two people come up to you and person one says, do this, and person two says, uh, do that, and you say, no, and person one pulls out a pocket knife. And they said, yeah, you're going to do that. Uh, and then person two unsheaths this huge sword. Who are you going to listen to? The person with the sword, right? We all get the illustration. We all get what's happening here. And this is why Jesus gives this picture to this church, a sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth. This is Jesus saying to this church, my words matter most. My words carry the most weight. In the end, Jesus is saying, my words are the only ones that are going to matter. My words matter the most. This is the risen Jesus giving his church the right kind of fear. And Jesus does this in his teachings, right? In the gospels, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus does the same thing to his followers there in Matthew 10. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, and do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Don't fear them. Rather, he says, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Right? This is Jesus saying, yeah, you should give weight to what your friends say. You should give weight to what your boss says. You should give weight to what the government says. You should give a certain amount of weight to what the culture around you says. But, but it should be a, a pocket knife sort of weightiness. Right? The worst they can do to you is kill you. That's the worst they can do, Jesus is saying. But then he says, only I have the sword. But I am the one that I, when I talk, I unsheath the huge sword. That, that, that's me, he says. I am the one who can kill both body and soul in hell forever. That, that's just Jesus giving his church, his followers, the right kind of fear. He's saying, you, you need to revere me most. In your life, my words have to carry the most weight. My words are the only words that will matter in the end. Church, how do we avoid compromise? How do you avoid compromise? Here's where it starts. We have to have a moment in our life where we settle the question. Whose words matter most? What Jesus thinks, what your friends think. What Jesus thinks, what your workplace thinks. What Jesus thinks, what the government thinks. What Jesus thinks, what our culture thinks. Whose words will matter most? Wh whose words? Just ask yourself that question. Wh whose words to me matter the most? And Jesus is inviting us today to cross the line with him. He's inviting us to look to him today and say, Jesus, it's settled. Your words matter most. You're the one with, with the sword coming out of your mouth. You're the one whose words matter. We've got to settle that. Jesus is saying, if you want to remain faithful, here's what you need to see first. My words carry the most weight. But then he goes on. It's not just that, that we see that truth, that his words carry the most weight, but we also see that Jesus sees that Jesus sees his saints, his people. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, I know where you dwell. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, 
my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, if you just look at these first three churches that we've covered thus far, uh, at the beginning of the letter to Ephesus, uh, the church there, Jesus says, I know your works. Uh, to Smyrna, he looked at the church and says, I know your tribulation. I, I can see what you're enduring there. And then to the church in Pergamum, he says, I know where you dwell. I see your situation. I see your city. I know the context you're in. I see where you dwell. Uh, let's just think about Pergamum for a moment. Pergamum was one of the largest cities in the ancient world. It had a population of almost 200,000 people. And in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, where Ephesus was the most important city, you could maybe think about like our maybe New York City, uh, Pergamum was our Washington DC. It was the capital, right? It was where all the governmental things were, were, were going down in the area. And think about how we name cities or sort of nickname them. So when it comes to New York City, uh, we nickname that city, we, we refer to it as the city that never sleeps, right? When we think about Philadelphia, what's Philadelphia? The city of brotherly love, yeah. When we think about Las Vegas, it's Sin City. Now, when you think about Pergamum, it wasn't Sin City. According to Jesus, it was Satan's city. That, that was their context. Hey, this was the place, Jesus says, where Satan's throne is. He goes on, this is the place where Satan dwells. Now, why did Jesus say that about this city in particular? Uh, here's the reason. It was steeped in idolatry. Idolatry was everywhere in Pergamum. Uh, Zeus was worshipped in Pergamum. Uh, Zeus had a temple in Pergamum that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It, it was amazing, just magnificent. It was the place where Zeus was worshipped. Athene was worshipped in Pergamum. Asclepius, in Greek mythology, he was the son of Apollo, who was thought to be the first physician. He was worshipped in Pergamum. People would come from all over the ancient world to get to Pergamum in hopes of being healed by Asclepius. So they would worship him in hopes of being healed by him. But above all of these sort of uh, false ways that the people of Pergamum, their, their worship was aimed, above all of those things, Pergamum was the, was the center point for emperor worship. They just wed their religion with their government in Pergamum. It, it was the place where uh, Caesar, where the emperor, he was worshipped. Now, you just put all that together and you get the picture. Satan might have been at work in Ephesus. Uh, Satan might have visited Smyrna. Uh, but in Pergamum, Satan built his home. This was the place he was dwelling. And Pergamum was not a f uh, friendly to followers of Jesus. Th this was not an easy place to be a follower of Jesus. And Jesus reminds them of Antipas. Now, we don't know a lot about Antipas. Some think he might have been the pastor of the church. Tradition holds that he was put in a bronze bull and, and burned alive. That, that's how he died, according to tradition. And Jesus calls Antipas, says he was my faithful witness. That, that's who he was. He was my faithful witness. But what a commendation. Just such a good reminder that as a follower of Jesus, our call is not to keep our coolness with the culture. It's not our, our, our role, our job. It's not to keep our status, our dignity among our culture. Our calling from the Lord is to be a faithful witness. It's Jesus' call in your life when you wake up on Monday and go to work, go to school. Whatever your life is looking like this week, his call in your life is wherever you are for you to be a faithful witness 
witness. Now, can you imagine living in a city like this? What Jesus calls wrong, the city calls right. What Jesus calls right, the city calls wrong. Everything is upside down in Pergamum. Living for Jesus came with a high price in this city. It cost you socially. It cost you economically. And Jesus looks at this church in Pergamum who's paying that high price and says, I know where you dwell. I, I see your situation. I know. And I know that you are holding fast to me in the middle of this difficulty, in the midst of this hardship, that, that you didn't deny me, that you held my gospel, you held on to me in the middle of this hard city. You, you are holding fast, church. And just like the people in Pergamum, some of us find ourselves in a really hard place today. Maybe it's a hard place in your marriage. Maybe it's a hard place with a wayward kid. Maybe it's financial hardship. Maybe you're, maybe you're just in a hard place because faithfulness to Jesus is making your life hard. Maybe that's you. Faithfulness to Jesus is actually costing you something right now. Socially, economically, relationally. It's just, it's, it's costing you something. There is a price that's being felt in your life right now. Hey, can you just let Jesus remind you from this text? He sees you. He knows. He knows your situation. He sees your faithfulness in it. He knows. He sees everything about your life, the heart of your life, the particular details of your He knows. He sees that. Hey, I want you to notice in this text that Yes, the people of God are in a hard spot, and Jesus doesn't ask them to flee the hard, but to remain faithful in the hard. And I just, I want to point that out because that is going to be true in so many of our lives. We're going to find ourselves in hard places and everything in us is going to want to flee. We'll run out of that heart as fast as we can when Jesus is looking at us and saying, no, the answer is not fleeing, that the answer is remaining faithful in it. Some, Jesus is going to call you to plant your life among an unreached people in a really, really hard spot. It's going to be really hard. And in that hard spot, Jesus is just going to ask you to plant your life there, to die there one day, just remaining faithful to him. He doesn't, he doesn't ask us to flee. He's not asking them to flee. He's saying, no, in the heart, I want you to be faithful. Just like Antimus, my faithful witness, be like that. Stay faithful in the hard. Church, if we're, if we're going to resist compromise, we have to see that Jesus' words carry the most weight. We have to see that Jesus sees his saints. He knows our lives. He knows where we dwell, the hardship in our lives. And then thirdly, we have to see that Jesus calls us to convictional faithfulness. He calls us to convictional faithfulness. Now you see this call within Jesus' correction of the church. Uh, look at verse, uh, verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, but I have a few things against you. Hey, you church, you're remaining faithful in the heart. I have this against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. 
Now, I want you to notice the irony in this passage. This church held fast while under the threat of constant persecution. Right, they're enduring suffering, and even in that, they are holding fast. Our man Antipas, Antipas, he died as a faithful witness, right? They are standing faithful in the midst of a lot of hard. But where persecution failed, perversion succeeded. I love how one pastor said it. He said, if Satan cannot kill the church, he'll happily join it and corrupt it from within. If Satan can't beat down the walls of a church with persecution, taking a sledgehammer from the outside, then he'll send a Trojan horse right through the membership class. He'll join the church and corrupt it. Satan doesn't care how a church stumbles, how a church fails, how it falls, as long as it does fall. Now, to illustrate the problem in Pergamum, Jesus uses this Old Testament reference. You'll find the story of Balaam in Numbers uh, 22, 23, 24, 25, right there at the end of the book of Numbers. But, but here's the gist of what's happening there with Balaam. It was through the teaching and influence of Balaam that the people of God were led astray, were led into false worship and sexual perversion. That, that's the gist of the story. Uh, Balaam, through his teaching influence, led the people of Israel into bad places, compromise, f the, the worship of false gods, sexual perversion. Now, in the same way, you, you have the teaching of the Nicolaitans there in this church, and that's what they were doing. They, their teaching inside of the church was leading the church to compromise. It was leading the church to the worship of false gods and all sorts of sexual perversion, sexual immorality. That's what the teaching of the Nicolaitans were doing, right? Th th this church had a crew within the church teaching compromise. Church, it's okay. Just take bits of Jesus, take bits of the culture, throw them into the blender and go with what comes out. It, Jesus is great with that. It's no problem. That's what they were teaching. Now, okay, let's take a step back though. Just consider you're in this church, right? You're living there in Pergamum, the place where Satan dwells, and you're under constant pressure. You're watching faithful brothers like Antipas die for Jesus, right? You're, you're watching sons and daughters walk away from Jesus, walk away from the church to worship Zeus and Athene and the emperor. You're watching all of these things happen. You're watching your friend lose his job because he's holding fast to Jesus. You're watching all of this go down and you start to ask the question, well, what, what should I do? And the answer for some is you find some Nicolaitans. Because here's what they're going to teach you. Here's what they're going to say. Hey, there's no problem between these two things, between what Jesus teaches and what the culture's saying. There's no problem. Here's the answer for the church. Here's what we as a church need to do. We need to let go of those old rigid convictions. All of those lines that we've drawn from the Bible, we need to let go of all of that. The answer is compromise. The answer is to blend the Bible what Jesus says over here with what the culture is saying over there. So the Nicolaitans are coming along and they're saying, hey, it is perfectly fine to mix a little of Jesus worship with a little emperor worship. There's no, Jesus is not jealous. It's, it's no problem. He has no problem with that. And this is what you're looking at when it's talking about the meat sacrificed to idols. 
The worship of these false gods in this city would come along with these huge feasts and these festivals, right? They're, they're participating in this eating of meat given to these false gods. They're just in the middle of the city's worship, right? This is what the Nicolaitans are teaching. It's no problem to do that. You, you can say yes to Jesus and yes to Zeus. It's no problem to do that. And they came along and said, hey, I, I know that you've heard it said that, that, that Jesus meant sex to be enjoyed between one man and one woman within the borders of marriage. I know you've heard that Jesus said that. Jesus, no, that, that's old. That's an old way of thinking. We, as a church now, we get to be progressive. Jesus is calling us to be open-minded. So let's loosen up a bit. Let's not be so rigid. You just be you. You can do what you want with whomever you want, whenever you want. Jesus is okay with all of that. The Nicolaitans came along and said, hey, you know old Antipas? You know where he'd have been if he would have just loosened up a little? You know where he'd be? Alive. That's where he'd be. Um, hey, I know that, that you want to keep your job. You know how you do that? Man, just, just stop drawing so many lines. If you'll just let go of your conviction, just compromise a little bit. It's just, it's just Zeus. It's not a big deal. If you'll just let go of some of these hard lines, you'll keep your job. Hey, I know you want that deal. Do you know how you get that deal? You, you get that deal by going on Friday night to the feast to, to honor uh, Zeus. That, that, if you just show up on Friday night, it's, Jesus will overlook it. If you'll just show up on Friday night, participate in the worship of Zeus, you will get the deal. That, that, that deal that's going to really make you, you'll get it. Just, just compromise. Would Jesus really care? Be open-minded. Let go of those old biblical convictions. They were looking at the church and saying, church, let's just love people. Let's just do that, church. And church, we have whole denominations who have swallowed whole the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You don't have to look far to find churches blending clear biblical truths with the convictions of our culture. You don't have to look far to find that. You don't have to look far to find churches trying to make the Bible's sexual ethics more palatable. Uh, the, the Jesus is teaching on gender more palatable. Jesus is teaching on marriage, what it is more palatable. Uh, Jesus is teaching on what it takes to be right with God, the exclusivity of Jesus. It is only through me, Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no hope beyond this life apart from me, Jesus says. My life, my death, my resurrection from the dead. You need the risen Jesus who lived for you and died for you if you're ever going to be right with God. Just trying to make all of that more palatable to our culture. You don't have to find, you don't have to look far to, to see all of those things. And Jesus is saying to that, no, no, church, do not compromise. Now, Jesus is saying to the church, but by all means love the world. But church, you cannot look like the world. Because when a church looks like the world, it has nothing to offer the world. Jesus is saying, no, you cannot compromise. Jesus is calling us to convictional faithfulness. Convictional faithfulness. Now, here's what convictional faithfulness requires. It requires the courage to stand with Jesus where Jesus draws the lines. That's what convictional faithfulness requires. 
to stand with Jesus where he draws the lines, come what may. And church, I, I just want to remind you of this. Jesus draws lines around our sexuality, how it's to be expressed, with whom it's to be expressed. He, he creates borders around our sexuality. He draws lines around marriage, what it is and what it isn't. He draws lines around gender, what is a man, what is a woman. Jesus has something to say about emperor worship or the place of politics in our life. And the place of politics is always below the place of Jesus, church. He has something to say about that. He has something to say about what it requires to be right with Jesus. It's exclusive according to Jesus. Right? It requires him, faith in the living Jesus who loved us and lived for us and died for us and rose from the dead. Part of what Jesus is, is saying to this church is, church, you should be a safe place for sinners. Yes, you should love sinners. Yes to that. But you as a church should not be a safe place for every idea that sinners have. See the difference? And, and this is applied to me and it's applied to, it's applied to every one of us in the room. The church should not be a safe place for every idea I have or you have or every inclination of your heart or every inclination of my heart. When my ideas run contrary to Jesus, I have a huge decision to make. Who will win? And Jesus is saying right now to this church, I better. When we as a church have ideas that run contrary to Jesus, who should win? Jesus is saying, church, I should win. This is what it means to be convictionally faithful to Jesus. And this is what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to have the courage to stand with him where he draws the lines. We cannot be a faithful church until we settle this question. We cannot be faithful Christians until we settle this question, are we willing to stand with Jesus where he draws clear lines? Are we willing to do that? He's calling this church to do that. Now, I want to talk just for a moment to those who are 25 and under in the room. There is unbelievable pressure on anyone who is 25 and below to compromise. Our culture has no problem if you look at them and say, I love Jesus. Yes, I'm on team Jesus. As long as you also say, and Jesus is okay with whatever you want to do sexually. He's okay with whatever you think about marriage. He's okay with whatever you think about what it means to be right with, with God. He's okay with all of that. If you combine both of those together, our culture is just fine. But the moment you say, Jesus actually has opinions about these things. He's actually drawn some clear lines in all of these things. The moment you say that is the moment you are going to feel this intense pressure to compromise. And so I just want to look at all of our 25s and downs in the room and just say, this is a moment for you. This morning is a moment for you to say with Jesus, come what may, I'm not going to compromise. I'm not going to value coolness to our culture, making peace with our culture above keeping peace with Jesus. I'm not going to do it. Not going to do it. And, and some of us have already compromised. A little bit of the Bible, a little bit of our culture. Throw it all together and we'll just kind of take whatever comes out of that blended mess of things. And, and if that's you, look at what Jesus says in verse 16. He says, repent. 
therefore repent. Repentance is a wholehearted change of direction. It's saying to Jesus, I was, however so subtly walking this way away from you, but no, I am changing. I am now walking back this way towards you, Jesus. Coming back home to you, Jesus. That's repentance. And look at the warning. He says, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. That is how serious Jesus is about convictional faithfulness. How seriously he hates compromise. He's saying, if, if you keep blending what I say with what the culture says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to come and make war against you. I mean, let that sober us for a moment. The, the moment a church loses its convictional faithfulness is the moment that church has stepped into conflict with Jesus. Jesus is saying, I, I will come and make war with you, church. And friends, that is an unwinnable war, isn't it? So rather than making war with Jesus, what if we just repented to Jesus today? Came back home to Jesus today. That's his invitation to us. So if we're going to resist compromise, Jesus says, my words have to carry weight in your life. The most weight. They have to matter the most. You have to see that I see you, my saints, in your suffering. Jesus says, you, you have to see that I've called you to convictional faithfulness. And lastly, and we'll finish here. Here's the fourth truth that Jesus gives us to help us resist compromise. He says, you're going to have to see that I promise a bright future. That I promise a bright future. Unless you believe this life is really pre-life. That the life to come is real life, like the one we've always longed for and always wanted. That, that, that real life is still to come. Unless we believe that, we'll never resist compromise. Nor should you. If, if this is all that you've got right now in this life, you should find any way you can to eke out joy now. Any way you can to make peace with as many people as you can now. As Paul says, you should just eat, drink, and be merry. That, that's what you should do if there is no life to come. But if the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus opens up a whole new future for his people, then our hearts ought to be full of courage, confidence, enough courage to remain convictionally faithful. Look at verse 17. Here's this bright future. Jesus says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers. That's the one who remains convictionally faithful, like Antipas. Who remains a faithful witness to Jesus. Come what may, I am in with Jesus, standing with Jesus. To the one who conquers, I'll give him some of the hidden manna. Manna was the bread that God rained down upon the people of Israel as they were wandering in the wilderness sustaining them, nourishing them. And that sustaining bread, that manna was really pointing forward to Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus says about himself in John 6? He says, I'm the bread that's come down from heaven. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me will never hunger or thirst again. And Jesus is saying to the church there in Pergamum, regardless of how hard faithfulness to me gets, I'll sustain you. I'll, I'll nourish you. I don't care how hard it gets. There's always going to be enough of me showing up in your life to help you, to sustain you, to get you through, to help you make it. There's going to be enough of me there for you, church. 
And then he goes on and says, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, white stones were often in that culture used like a ticket. So this was your way in. You've got the white stone. You can get into the feast, the festival, the concert, the whatever the thing is going on. This was, this was your way in. This is Jesus saying to his church, to the, to the one who stays faithful, here's what you can look forward to. You're going to have that white stone in the future. You're going to have a warm welcome into the bright future that I have prepared for you. You're going to have your ticket. You're going to have your white stone. It's, it, it's a future that's, it's a future in the place that you were made for. It's the new heavens and the new earth. It's going to blow your mind. It's this future with the one, that this person that you were made for, me. I'm going to be there. You're going to get parts of my heart to explore for the next billion years, forever. It's going to keep stunning your heart. And this future, Jesus is saying, it's going to be forever. That this is what I'm inviting you into. If you remain faithful, convictionally faithful, this is what's in front of you. Jesus is reminding us in the church then, whatever convictional faithfulness costs you, your job, social status, money, your life, whatever it is, friends, he will more than make up for it. When you walk into that bright future, every sacrifice, every cost, every hard thing is going to feel so light, so insignificant, so church, church. Let us love the people of our city. Let us be people full of compassion with a bleeding heart for people and church. At the same time, let us be full of courage and convictional faithfulness. Holding on to love, yes, and truth, yes. Amen? Let's pray together. I want to give you just a moment there where you are to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful. For some of us today, this is the day we need to meet Jesus to throw our life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If that's you, do that there where you are. Right now, call out to him. For others, this is, this is the morning where we need to cross the line. This, this is the morning. Jesus, your words will be most weighty. Your words will matter most in my life. This is the morning we step across that line of convictional faithfulness. Jesus, I will stand with you regardless of what it costs. Wherever you draw the lines, that's where I'm going to be, oh Jesus. Some of us just need to say that to the Lord. And this is going to be that moment of repentance for many of us. Where we have drifted into compromise. It's just an invitation from the Lord to come back home to him. So Father, would you meet us now? Would you press this text into us? God, would you make this church family convictionally faithful? God, would you fill us with courage? God, would you help us be a church who both loves people and loves the truth? Oh God, would you help us do that? And it's in the good name of Jesus we ask it. Amen.